My name is Jordan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. And uh, listen, I think one of the reasons that like social media is so difficult for a lot of us is that it tends to be filled with the highlight feed of everybody that we know. And I'm not talking down on that because I, I think there's something natural that fuels that, which is that good news is always meant to be shared. Like nobody posts their mediocre peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Um, on, peanut butter and jelly sandwich is actually pretty great. But nobody posts the mediocre things in their life. But the good things we tend to share and sometimes overshare because good news is meant to be shared. One of the hopes that I, I hope that I, has been deposited in your life and one of the things that I hope you've discovered to be good news is this gospel of Jesus Christ. And that good news is meant to be shared. So much so that we're creating space next week with our three services uh, and a party after each service at 9, 10.30, and noon. Uh, I asked the 10 o'clock people to come at 9. I don't know how many of you guys are actually going to do that. Uh, but I would love for some of you to not just invite your friends, but also to consider coming to the 10 a.m. as we're sharing this good news. You never know what's going to happen with an invite. About 20 years ago, someone invited me to, to church. And in going to, to church that one Sunday, it radically changed my life. You don't know what's going to happen with people who are going to be far from God, but they're close to you. And we're hoping and praying that God does some amazing things uh, next Sunday. We're going to have our choir, our, our uh, party after each service, and it's going to be a really great time celebrating this good news. So let me pray for us before we get into today. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you that you are with us. I thank you that you are for us. Lord, I pray that those two, deep, those two truths make their way deep into our hearts and our minds today. Block out all the distractions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I uh, were taking an early morning flight to get to church um, because we had just celebrated the 100th birthday of uh, a giant in our family, Cousin George. Uh, Cousin George is not just a hundred, but this dude has a razor sharp mind. He cooks for himself, he lives by himself, and uh, he makes the best sweet potato pie this side of the Mississippi. It's funny, Cousin George I had a nutritionist that was telling him he needed to change his diet when he was 98 years old. He was like, I'm 98. I, you know, if I, if I want to eat sweet potato pie every day, that's what I'm going to do. And you can't stop me. More impressive than Cousin George physically is who he is as a person. Every year my family goes to Virginia, the big city of Buffalo Junction, where there is now McDonald's and a Hardee's. And, uh, uh, and we spend about a week uh, in Virginia with family. My wife and I have made it a habit to spend time on the porch with Cousin George at his house. And to hear him tell stories, it is absolutely profound. He grew up as the son of a slave. His father was actually a slave until he was 12 years old, uh, before he was emancipated. And Cousin George grew up in very meager circumstances in the Jim Crow South. A couple of things strike me about Cousin George. Every time I leave him, I leave just so impressed by how happy and full of joy he is. He doesn't have a lot. He grew up raising hogs and farming, and his house is very small, very meager circumstances, he doesn't have a lot of money. Uh, when he dies one day, he won't have much to leave anybody, but he is the happiest, most at peace 
most joy-filled person that I've ever met. I actually think that there's a piece of his long life and his longevity and the sharpness of his mind that's attributed to this inner peace and calm that he has in his life. Cousin George doesn't have a lot, but he's content. Now, today we're in the Gospel of John, and I want to have a conversation from the Gospel of John that's hopefully reminiscent of a conversation that I had, that I've had with Cousin George, and we're going to see up close and personal what it looks like for someone to be content. Contentment is a difficult concept to talk about, mostly because it's so far away from most of us. Certainly, I know that this has been something that I've struggled with my entire life. Now, contentment throughout the Bible um, probably is best defined as having peace where God has you, trusting in his character and his nature. Contentment is having peace of wherever it is that God has you. It doesn't mean not having ambition. It doesn't mean wanting different things. It doesn't mean working towards, not working towards different things. But it does mean having this inner calm and this inner peace of wherever God has you, trusting in his character and his nature. And this concept of peace is something that you see all throughout Scripture. Uh, the uh, writer of the Psalms, David, when he talks about contentment, he talks about it in these terms. And some theologians have said, this is one of the shortest Psalms and one of the most difficult to actually live out. Here's what David says in Psalm 131. Uh, Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child. Israel, church, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. When biblical authors talk about contentment, they talk about it from a sense of peace. I don't know if you've ever been around a baby that has a belly full of nice, warm milk. They are the most at peace and content beings on the planet, milk on top of their mouth, drool coming out, and they're so content. And the biblical authors give us this picture that no matter really what's going on around them, there is this inner sense of satiation, of fullness, that almost ignores the external circumstances. My wife and I were, um, well, my youngest child, um, she got wise to my games that I was playing. I was like, listen, there's nothing I can do with the baby overnight. You have to feed him, so I guess I'll just sleep. Eventually, she got ahead of the game and had milk available for me. Like, no, no, you can take the 3 a.m. shift with him. And uh, with, my, with my oldest, man, he would wake up screaming. And I would, at the first sign of him wrestling, I would run up, run to the fridge, get the milk, put it in the, in the, the water heater, try to bounce him, and for three minutes, stall him before he got his milk. And he's letting out these blood-curdling screams. More afraid of his screams was waking my wife up, so I was definitely not trying to do that. And uh, eventually, he would get the milk, and all of a sudden, this peace would wash over him. I think what the authors of Scripture are talking about is this thing that we can have that washes over us. It comes from the inside. It doesn't come from the outside at all. One of the lies about contentment or discontentment is that our situation will determine our satisfaction. That your situation will or should determine your satisfaction, but contentment is something that comes from the inside and something that can be born in, in all of us. 
So this is a perfect time for us to be talking about contentment uh, because Christmas is a wonderful reminder of all of the things that you don't have. It's a perfect time for you to be reminded of all the things that you don't happen, that you don't have. I remember the first Christmas um, after my late wife passed away was uh, a pretty difficult time, probably one of the worst Christmases, definitely the worst Christmas of my life. Uh, thinking about what I don't have, every Lexus commercial where there was that smiling couple uh, in their perfectly pressed PJs uh, walking out into the snow of this brand new Lexus with a red ribbon on front of it, every commercial was just a reminder that I didn't have what I wanted and I didn't have any peace. It's hard to have peace when life around you is difficult, but Scripture offers us a, a different way, a promise that you and I could have contentment in the midst of whatever circumstance that we have. And for all of us, wherever you are today, whether life is fantastic or whether life is challenging, there is something that we see in the Scripture that's going to lead us towards having this inner sense of contentment, this calm, this peace with where God has us, trusting in his character and in his nature. So we're in the Gospel of John, and quick um, uh, introduction to the, the characters in this, in this text. So the Gospel of John is written by a dude named John, but this text is about a, another guy named John the Baptist. And this John the Baptist is not John the Baptist because he's not John the Lutheran or John the Methodist. He is uh, <laughs> someone who spent his career baptizing people. Uh, he even baptized Jesus, and he gets this nickname, John the Baptist. And John, the revelator, the author of this book, who also wrote uh, the book of 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and also the book of Revelation uh, at the end of the Bible, this is a guy who's talking about John, and John was one of Jesus' followers, and he's talking about this guy, John the Baptist, and here's what he says, and I want you to listen to how John interprets all the things that are coming out of his way and how he responds. In John 3, it says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, where he spent time with them and baptized. John was also was there baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose among, between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going with him. John responded, no one can receive anything unless it, had been, it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is now complete. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Now, I don't want you to miss out on the meaning and the power of what's happening in this text. John had spent years, his entire adult life, working towards this point to where he had built up a following. He had built up a reputation. He had built up a standing in the community. And Jesus comes along and all of a sudden, everything that he has worked for is now going away. John, this guy Jesus, he's baptizing across the Jordan and everybody is leaving and going with him. Now, we have a lot of people here who work in different ministries, college ministries, high school ministries, and you might not wake up in the morning wrestling about, um, about ministry stuff or, or thinking about uh, the, the amount of people that come to a church, or that might not be your thing, but all of us struggle with 
some area of contentment or discontentment. But there's three real big areas that I know to be true of you, even though I don't know all of you. Uh, we normally struggle with material, relational, or circumstantial discontentment. For John, it was work, it was professional, it was uh, circumstantial that everything that he had worked for his entire life was now gonna go away. Um, but for us, it's usually material, relational, or circumstantial. Material is easy, it's more money, bigger paycheck, better position at the job, uh, more sneakers, whatever it is, uh, that's mine, that might not be yours. Uh, better vacations, whatever it is that we want uh, more. Uh, I love that movie, Wall Street, and in the first scene, uh, he asks him, says, yo, how much, how much is enough? And he said, more. That's the funny thing about our appetites. Your appetites will never be satisfied. Your appetites are always growing. The goals that you have now will be the things that you would cringe at later. Our goals, are now, our appetites are always growing, and a lot of us struggle with material discontentment, and uh, it's something that robs us of peace that God wants to have for us. But material discontentment is one thing, it's not that big of a deal, especially when you compare it to something like relational discontentment. Relational discontentment for people who want to be in a relationship and want to be married is when you yourself, if you want to be in a relationship, if you want to be married, that you don't have the relationship that you see other people having, and every single day it eats at you. For others of you, it's the discontentment not just with other people, but it's with yourself, that the marriage didn't work out. And what if I did this, or what if I did that? And now you don't have any peace. And one of the most dangerous that we don't talk about nearly enough are the people who are in relational, who are discontent in their relationships, and they're married. Every morning they wake up next to a stranger, next to someone that, if they were to keep it all the way live, they can't stand them. And Christmas time is a phenomenal reminder of the relationship that they don't have. Yes, they're going to come around holding hands and exchanging gifts in front of family members, but deep down inside, they're absolutely miserable. For others of you, it's circumstantial. It's where you are in life is just not where you thought you should be or where you want to be. On days like today where we have these amazing children on stage singing songs and ringing these beautiful bells, uh, you're just reminded about the last miscarriage. And you know you are not where you want to be. You don't have what you see right in front of you. Now, John walks us through some stuff that doesn't lessen the pain of anything that we go through, but it does offer us a peace in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the challenges, in the midst of the struggle that offers us this contentment, this satisfaction with where God has us, and a trust in his nature and in his character. But in order to, to get it, uh, you and I are going to have to learn some things. And one of the, the most interesting things about contentment is that none of us are born with it. None of us are born just naturally with contentment. And this shows us something, a little bit about what it means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means that you need to learn, unlearn, and relearn a whole lot of things. The, the word disciple is a learner. It means that you are in a lifelong learning relationship with Jesus. So don't let yourself off the hook because you don't feel like you have it just yet. Stick in there for a little while and allow Jesus to teach you what it means to develop and to form contentment in your life. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Philippians 4. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care 
for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with a little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all these things through him who strengthens me. Now, in order for us to learn contentment, there's a couple of things from this text that I want to guide the rest of our conversation today uh, that are going to lead us towards what it means to learn contentment and to be content and to have this peace in our life. And the first thing that contentment requires is refusing comparison. Absolutely refusing comparison. Now, to a certain extent, it's necessary to compare ourselves. It's a very human thing to do. But when we look to other people for our peace, that's when it gets dangerous. So here's what we see in John 3, um, 25 through 26. It says, Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going with him. So John, here's your ministry. And here, let's compare it to Jesus's ministry. John refuses that comparison because the fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else. John refused comparison. And if we're going to learn what it means to, to develop contentment, we're going to need to learn to refuse comparison uh, as well. Have you ever noticed that you might have been satisfied with something until someone compared it with something else? Like you were, you were fine with your apartment until you went to the dinner party at their apartment. <laughs> and then you notice how much you don't like your apartment just because theirs is better. Uh, I've used this example before, but it's one of the best uh, that I know to drill down this point of how damaging comparison is to your life. And truly, there is no win in comparison. So imagine today you're scrolling Twitter and you see an ad for the lottery for a two-bedroom apartment right near the 2-3 train because a C train is trash. <laughs> this apartment is brand new, 24-7 doorman, amenities, a weight room, and it's rent control. Yes, Lord. <laughs> you click on the link, and you're like, there's no way I get this. No way I get this. Click on the link, fill out the application. A couple of weeks go by, you forget you even filled it out. And then all of a sudden, the email pops in your inbox. You got the apartment. You go to the leasing office. You're floating. You're on cloud 209 uh, going down to the leasing office. You sit down and you look at someone else and they're like, yeah, you know, man, this lottery thing is amazing, isn't it? You're like, yeah, you know, just one this, you know, it's, God is good, man. It's all about him. It's all about him. <laughs> you know, something like, let's, you know, two-bedroom apartment over there, you know, amenities, no big deal. And they say, oh, that's great. And you find out they won a four-bedroom apartment for the same price with a balcony. What happened to your joy with what you just had? <laughs> it immediately goes all the way down because you don't have what they had. In three seconds, you went from cloud nine to complaining and mad that you didn't get what someone else got. On the road to, of comparison, there are only two exits, pride and discouragement. 
And if you compare yourself, if you're looking for your peace from other people and comparing yourself to other people, you will only be able to go in one of those two directions. Pride, where you feel better than people, or discouraged that you don't have what they have. The author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, one of the wisest people in the Bible, uh, he says it like this in Ecclesiastes 4 and 4. He says, And I saw that all the toil, which is all the work, all the toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What's Solomon saying? When you compare yourself, it's basically like going outside and chasing after the wind. Uh, what I would love for you to do is to memorize the scripture. And this week, as you're going about your day-to-day -day routine, anytime you feel a comparison coming into your brain, just say, I'm chasing after the wind. This is me chasing after the wind. What would happen if you chased after the wind? It's endless. It's pointless. There's no finish line. There's no trophy. There's no winner and no peace. Dissatisfaction guaranteed. So in order to develop contentment, the first thing we need to learn how to do is to refuse comparison. Uh, the second thing we see in this text is that if we're going to de develop contentment in our life, it's going to require that we embrace our limitations. But we don't like limitations. We don't like telling anyone telling us that we can't do something. But all of us have limitations, and our limitations are a gift from God. God is not trying to take things from you. God is trying to give things to us. And by nature, since we are not God, we are limited. So John 3.27, it says, after John was told about everybody's leaving him, this is what John says. No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. Think about that for a second. Nobody can receive anything unless it had been given to him from heaven. One of the challenges of being a human is that we have the power to notice, but not the power to change things. In the beginning of the Bible, you see this character of God who is able to speak things into existence. You and I have the ability to notice what is out of place, but not always the power to change those things. And that's a paradox. How do we respond to that? We need to embrace our limitations as a gift from God that God is not trying to take things from us, but he's trying to give things to us. And if you look through the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, Every single person that God is in a relationship with, God establishes boundaries and limitations. From the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 2, here's what it says. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded him, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, theologians have long since argued, uh, why did God say they can't eat from this tree? Uh, and there's a hundred different opinions on why that was. But the one consistent thing is to be in relationship with God means that we have to embrace and accept his limitations on our life. When did Adam and Eve's relationship with God go haywire? What broke the relationship when they refused to embrace God's limitations on their life? I'm all for going after it. I quit my job to start a church. I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'm your friend that will tell you to spend all your rent money on clothes if they look fly. <laughs> I'm all for just putting it all on the line and we'll figure it out, out, out later. But here's the, thing about, here's the thing about us. Our culture tells us that we can do anything, have anything, be anything. And that's just not true when it comes to the way that we operate and connect with God. God puts limitations on us. All of us have limitations. Um, 
And you and I need to do a good job of embracing and grieving the limitations that we have. Some of our limitations are just our physical bodies, um, your age, uh, and I, I certainly notice this every time I celebrate another birthday. Plastic surgeons have made millions and billions of dollars delaying the appearance of aging, but nobody has figured out how to stop aging. You can take all the pills and multivitamins you want. One day, your body's gonna return to dust. Your body is decaying and aging, and there's nothing any of us can do about it, but yet, we, try, we don't wanna embrace limitations as if they're foreign and as if we have the choice whether or not to accept them. So our bodies are um, a limitation. Your family of origin is a limitation. There are some things about you that have been shaped by your culture, your family of origin, that are a limitation. And certainly in a diverse church, we see this every, every single community group. There are some things that you grew up thinking that are just wrong. And your culture, is as amazing as it might have been, is flawed. Your parents, your grandparents, whoever raised you, as amazing as they were, uh, did not teach you everything about everything. And you come into adulthood with these limitations. And here's the thing about your family and your, and your culture. Man, God put that limitation on you. In Acts 17, 26, it says that God has predetermined your boundaries and your time and place of inhabitants, meaning that God put you in this body, in this, in this time, to, the, to your parents, knowing that your parents and your culture would be limited. This is a God-given limitation. Your marital status, whether you are single or married, is a limitation. If you have children, that's even more of a limitation. Now, I'm very grateful to my friends in here who keep me on the group chats. Um, and it could be 6.30 p.m. and they're deciding to go out at 6.45 p.m. And I'm like, my life don't work like that, bro. Uh, I have to put this on our calendar meeting on Sunday evening to get permission to go out on Tuesday night. <laughs> 10 days in advance. I'm just not going to leave bath time and story time to go watch the game. I, I would love to watch the Knicks lose with everyone else, but I can't, <laughs> I can't just decide unilaterally to do that. And that's a limitation. A lot of my singles in here, you guys feel left out and uh, no pun intended, singled out a lot of times because you don't feel always invited into every single circle uh, that some married people are. You feel like you're missing out on certain relationships and that's a limitation. With all the freedoms, there's limitations on, on both sides. Your talents and your gifts, your wealth, your time, there are so many limitations that we have, and we can spend the majority of our time complaining, being frustrated about what we're limited, or we can stop and wonder and get curious about, God, what is it that you have for me in this time? And to embrace our limitations as something that God has and that God has given us, not to harm us, but to give something to us. So if we're going to develop contentment, we need to embrace our limitations. Thirdly, man, we need to redefine success. Lord, we need to redefine success. Let me ask you a question. What if you get everything that you can think about right now, everything that you want, and you get to the end of your life, and you realize that's not what God wanted for you? Far more dangerous than not being successful is succeeding at a whole lot of stuff that did not matter. Let's reverse that. What if you got to the end of your life and you limped there and it was difficult and you can say, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race that God had for me. I have been faithful to everything God has called me to do. Would you look back on your life with regret if you were successful in that way? 
Success, we need to redefine it to be doing what God asks you to do, doing it his way, and doing it in his timing. What is it that God has for you right now? Do, in what way? You're not going to cut any corners. Doing it his way and doing it in his timing. So much grief could be avoided if we redefined success. A.W. Tozer once said, let a man set his heart or her heart only on doing the will of God, and they are instantly free. Let someone set their heart only on doing the will of God for their lives, and they are instantly free. What happens is we get shackled up and kind of imprisoned to the picture of life that we think we need or deserve or want, and nothing else will satisfy, nothing else will suffice, and we put success as something else that may not be what God has for us or may not be what God has for us right now. And I don't want you to spend our time, I don't want us to spend our time frustrated and angry that we're not um, achieving certain things, but rather to, to change the rubric for what success looks like. Fourth thing we see in this text is that if we're going to truly develop contentment, we need to refine our purpose. Why are you here? To what end is your life? Here we see in John 3.28 that the reason he's able to be content, even though his life on the outside is crumbling down, everyone's leaving his ministry, he says this, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah. Here's why I came. I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, this one is for the Christians in the room, those of you who have committed your life to Jesus. A lot of times we wonder about what your purpose is in life, and you, there's a very crystal clear answer to what your purpose is. Your life's purpose is to bring God glory through your life. That people would get a glimpse. They would get a glimpse of the power, the joy, and the depth of love of the gospel through your life. One of the greatest evangelism, evangelistic tools would be someone who's just content in life. In a city of, like New York where everybody is chasing after the wind, where everybody is miserable, where everybody's working 400 hours a week uh, just trying to impress other people. Uh, if you were a content person, man, that would point people to this. They would ask you, yo, what is it about you? What is it about you? And then you'd be able to respond with the hope that lives within you. Your life is meant to be lived for the glory of God. But here's a challenge with that. Uh, somewhere along the line, and this happens to me every day, I turn it from my life being a means to an end to my life being the end. And the questions I ask are not about what is this leading towards, but the questions I ask are, how is this going to benefit me? Here's the thing about purpose. Things only have purpose if they are a means to an end and not an end themselves. Everything else in life that you find purposeful is a means to an end. A toothbrush, a shovel, a TV. It's all a means to an end. It's not an end in and of itself. If you bought a TV and just hung it up on a wall and it didn't show anything, all you did was just look at a blank screen, that would be the worst, most boring time in, in the world. A TV, no matter how expensive it is or how nice the bezels look, it's meant to be a means to an end. Our lives are the same way. Purpose is about becoming a means to an end that is not you. 
The better question we can live and ask is, what am I here for? Who am I here for? Uh, there's a quote from a pastor in Atlanta named Andy Stanley, and he says this, and I'll just drop this on your lap. He says, those who devote themselves to themselves will ultimately have nothing but themselves to show for themselves. Those who devote themselves to themselves will ultimately have nothing but themselves to show for themselves. It's the difference between you approaching your life in terms of being a means to an end or being the end in itself. I don't want you to get to the end of your life having lived for yourself because you're not going to have anything but yourself to show for yourself. But what if you changed your mind? What if you trusted Jesus and said, Jesus, even though this is painful and difficult, I'm going to trust you to make something beautiful out of my life and that my purpose is to live my life in such a way that would bring you glory with my life. It won't be easy, but it will be exciting. The last thing we need to do in order to truly develop contentment in our life is to remember the cross. If you take the cross out the equation, it, this turns into a self-help exercise that I'm not interested in talking about. But what does the cross remind us of? It reminds us of a, a couple of things. The first is that God is absolutely willing to bring people who are closest to him massive amounts of short-term disappointment. Good Friday should not be called Good Friday at all. It was the most miserable, heart-wrenching day for Jesus' followers. They were watching their life crumble down. What they didn't know then, and we have the hindsight of knowing, was that three days later, Jesus would rise from the dead, and the ceilings of their imagination would be blown off to realize this power and this presence of this God, and that God, who had promised all of these things, is actually able to live up to their word. But on that Friday, their life was miserable. When we look to the cross, we remember that God is... He is, uh, he is perfectly comfortable allowing for short-term disappointment in our life. But it also points us towards the power of God to turn the worst possible situation into the ultimate triumph. If Christ can raise from the dead, what in your life cannot be resurrected? There's something about when we look towards the cross, not only in terms of looking at God's power and how he allows for disappointment, but the thing that I think really hits me the most is God's intentions. Ultimately, when we're discontent, we're basically saying, God, you're either not good or you're not for me. You're not good or you're not for me. And when we look to the cross, we see that God is ultimately good. He's so good that God would die for his enemies. Sometimes, Jesus, uh, Paul says in Romans, sometimes someone would die for a really good man, but nobody would die for their enemies. And God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God is good, and if the cross don't prove that, nothing will. Not only that, but God is ultimately and infinitely for us. And as Paul asked the question in Romans 8.32, if God didn't spare his own son, how will he not, along with Christ, also graciously give us all things? God is not withholding anything from you because he's not good. He's not withholding anything for you, from you because he's not for you. But God does call us to the messy middle to wait for him with patience and with hope and with expectation that he's doing something beautiful in our lives. And he hasn't forgotten us. He is for us and he is with us. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, as we search our hearts and think about all the areas in which we're struggling with discontentment, Lord, I pray that we would continue to learn what it means to follow you. And Lord, our gentle Savior, 
I pray that you would teach us and lead us in the way of finding that peace in you. God, would you be with all my brothers and sisters who are hurting in this uh, holiday season? And Lord, I pray that you would, in this time of worship, redirect our hearts and our minds to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.